0: I want to start. Thank you. No, no, no. That's great. <laughs> so I want to start with um, a quote from the Buddha. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis, take or stand upon it store it up and thoroughly set it going. And so just in case, perhaps not, because it might still be early enough in our weekend retreat that this thought didn't arise. But if ever you're like, what am I doing here? I could be sleeping in, going for brunch with friends or laying about or whatever. (laughs) If you need a reminder, like, why am I here? Why am I doing this? Or what is it that I'm even doing? I find that's a a great reminder. We are trying to liberate ourselves through love. And then again, that part from the Buddha, we will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it, store it up, and thoroughly set it going. When our love or metta is both a way and a basis or a foundation, I like to think that um, our practice is deepening and then we're invited to not leave any part of ourselves outside of this practice. And in that way, when we're able to allow more of ourselves in this practice, and you might be still uncovering what some of those ways are, because last night in our opening, I had said, what are some of the parts of you that you don't bring into practice? And so you might still be discovering what those parts are. But when we bring all of those parts into our practice, I really believe that then it starts to spill out into our lives. And so that we get to deepen the experience of our lives. And then we get to live more fully. And, and at the same time, perhaps as a disclaimer, um, given the state of the world and the news and all that's going on in our personal lives, out in the world, living more fully or experiencing our lives can be scary because a lot of folks would much prefer not feeling or being numb to this or something like that. And so I heard this from Emily Horn of, uh, Um, meditation teacher who is one of the founders of Buddhist geeks. And she says something like when we practice or we start meditating or we start practicing being mindful, we hurt more, but it bothers us less. And it's not to say that we like don't care, but we might jump into action. We are, uh, and have our, love be the springboard for action as opposed to maybe withdrawal um, which is the movement of wanting to say numb out. And so I want to use this time to share a little bit about my just my relationship with metta and and some of the roots of that. It comes from my childhood um, or the absence of those roots which has led to to my practice. And, and I want to share that partly so that um, hopefully you can see parts of yourself reflected in, in my story that I don't know if you were like me, but often when I would go on retreats, I would think like, they have it figured out. Like mm-hmm. they don't suffer like me or something like that. And I mean, all I have to do is call in my partner And he can easily (laughs) say, nope, uh, she gets still angry quite quickly and impatient and all of that. And so all this to say, it's like we're in this together. And also, I want to share my my background because a lot of the expressions of the practices that we have access to, at least in the convert Buddhist world, comes from a European-American context. And it's not to say that that is better or worse or anything like that. It's not a judgment. It's simply just um, providing a different facet or a different angle of something. Um, because, yes, we are all one and we are all different. And uh, as one of my teachers, Larry Yang, says, who we are is where we start. Mm-hmm. So it's a, if for those of you who know, say, some of the, the teachings, it's in the uh, oh, I'm forgetting—not the absolute, the relative. So it's in the relative that we need to start. The relative um, angle teachings, etc. And so to illustrate that further, speaking of Larry, so this is one of my favorite Dharma books, and I'll put this in our resource docs. But it's uh, Larry's book called Awakening Together: The Spiritual Practice of Inclusivity and in Community. And so he says, like any manifestation of nature like any snowflake, leaf on a tree, or shape of a cloud. We, ha- we all have attributes that are unique and characteristics that are common. It is through seeing the deep nature of our differences and how they are part of our lives that we can also see the deep similarities of our human experience. We all feel different at some point in our lives. and that experience of difference is a similarity common to us all. Just as we cannot have a life without both joys and sorrows, we cannot have a life without both differences and similarities. And so um, my background is that I'm the daughter of immigrants and, um, and they hustled really hard to move to um, a country really far away from the Philippines. And in that hustle, there was a lot of um, assimilating. So it was both like learning the rules, like simple things like how to mail letters, where's the post office or something like that, but also assimilating. um, And the the internalized message that I have is assimilate so that we say like, don't rock the boat, we don't draw more attention to us, et cetera. And so in addition to navi- navigating a new country, um, that was where a lot of the focus was on and very much survival mode. And as a result, when I was growing up, I never really got asked things like, how do you feel or anything like that? It was more like, what did you learn? Who were who you with? What are you doing? Kind of thing. And so even though I was loved, I had clothes and food and family and a home um, in a somewhat stable environment, same home, all of my childhood, um, I still internalized this. I needed to earn or be worthy of love somehow, because I think since there was no real attention to me, just like what I did and what I learned. And, and that was when my parents had the space to even turn to me. Otherwise it was like working and hustling, et cetera. And so I interpreted that as I've mentioned a few times already, um, that I needed to earn the love by, by, um, by achieving. And so that's when my, my journey with perfectionism started, sometime like pretty young. And with perfectionism, for those of you who are also perfectionists, I like to say now though I'm a recovering perfectionist, that is still kind of very possible. It's in the field and yet it doesn't flare up as much as it used to. And so um, if you are like me or are like me, um, very motivated by external forces or external factors. Um, and that, that perfectionism inevitably got, um, got brought into my practice when I did start practicing, uh, when I did find this path. And so what would happen was that I, um, I brought that tightness into my practice And partly because I was trying to be an introvert through practice, but also just that perfectionist was like my teacher said, follow the breath. And when the mind wanders, bring it back. And I was like, got it, on it kind of thing. And then so when the mind wandered, I was like, no, come back. And I was quite rough with myself. And so what I didn't realize that in addition to practicing how to bring my mind back, I was also practicing being hard on myself or judging what was natural. Like the mind thinking is natural, just as natural as the ear hear sound. Because in the Buddhist teachings, the mind thinking is one of the senses. And yet I was chastising myself for this very natural occurrence. And so it was maybe, you know, in hindsight, hindsight is 2020. So it's like, of course, that spilled out into my life. And that that hardness got transferred out to anybody around me. And then also, um, I would try to de- deny nature arising in me in, in different ways. Like if, I, if, if feelings that were present, maybe if I deem them unpleasant or inappropriate, it's like mindfulness it away, or sometimes we say vipassanize it away. It's like if a mindfulness, mindfulness, mindful, pardon, of it enough, it'll go away kind of thing. But really, that's low key aversion. But all this to say is that was a pattern for many, many years. And then when I would go on retreats, I I actually would give myself panic and anxiety, anxiety attacks from all the efforting. And um, when I would come home and people would ask, like, how was your retreat? particularly the people who don't practice or don't go on retreat, they kind of think like it's a vacation or a spa. They're like, what? You don't have to answer emails. How lucky or something. You get food cooked for you, et cetera. And so when I told them I I had anxiety and panic attacks, they were just like, I really have no clue what you're doing (laughs) kind of thing, because how could that happen when meditating? And so it got to the point where my partner at that time and my mom, I don't know if this was intentional, but they had like this intervention with me. They were just like, you do all this meditation, you go on retreats and um, and like, you're scary. You know, like you get angry so quickly. You're so impatient. You judge us. We can't live up to your standards kind of thing. And of course I was like, you don't know me. You don't know what you're talking about. And so I wasn't in the in the place to receive in that moment. And I continued practicing, but of course, their words kind of stuck with me. And then I um, it w- it became quite clear that oh wait a second how I'm practicing is really not working, or it's not wholesome, or it's not leading to skillful states. And so that's why already, I think I've said how we practice at least half a dozen times. You'll hear me say that much more uh, over the weekend, but it's because it was the root of so much suffering, even though on the outside, I was doing all the things. I was meditating, going on retreat, et cetera. And so that was incredibly painful to hear because I didn't know how else to practice basically. So I felt quite lost. Um, and then that's around when all of my different teachers would say metta, metta, metta. And then it, it took a few years, I'd have to say, that I really started tuning into that softening from my metta or or thanks to my metta practice. And so as I shared earlier, I was pretty intense about my metta practice. I, I was like, fine, like three or four teachers assigned me this. Okay. And then, and then I uh, doubled down and I was like, I'm going to do this. And uh, so still that perfectionism and I was practicing pretty intensely. And, and then in the, uh, I was, I was reciting the phrases, any chance I got for years, it's like walking to the subway in between appointments, um, et cetera. And I'm just trying to wonder, like, I don't think Instagram existed back then. Cause I'm sure I probably would have like been distracting myself if I had social media. But at that time, at the very least, um, that's what I was devoting any spare time to. And then what would happen was at the end of the day, I would I would stop and and ask myself, like, how how loving and kind was I today? And just the way that my mind works, perhaps I have a little bit more of an aversive uh, personality or mind um, but it would, it would be like, oh, that was a moment of loving kindness. Oh, but wait, not that one, nor that one, nor that one, or that one, or that one. And so then I'd be really hard on myself. And then I would think, but then there's tomorrow. And then, I mean, you probably know how it goes. So many days, months, years of that, of having this standard of, loving and kind being be kind of where I would um, compare my current state to. It never occurred to me to compare when I was feeling loving and kind to that standard. It was often when I was doing this end-of-day audit, and, um, and I was hard on myself. So as my practice deepened, a trust grew. Um, as I said, I just, I still kept at it partly because I was so desperate and partly because everyone around me kept saying, stay with it. Um, and then one of my, my my quirks maybe that I would do is when I would act in a way that was unskillful, I would then fall into like a shame cycle the morning after. So if I got really angry, picked a fight, yelled, I don't know, just like acted in ways that, that I, that weren't in line with my values or the qualities I was trying to cultivate. And, um, or if I was, I had a lapse of mindfulness and then the emotion took over kind of thing. And then the next day I, I start the fog clears and then I get quite ashamed, et cetera. And And before those shame cycles were very frequent and would last days. Now, and again, I really believe it's because of my loving kindness practice that um, they don't happen as often and not nearly as long. Um, But I remember at that time, one of the things I would do is go into the shower and like like have something about the water falling on me to help me cry, but also to like, I would be hard on myself. Like, why did you do that? Oh my gosh, kind of thing. And in some ways, I guess I thought that that was like a way to like move it through my system, uh, being hard on myself or something like that. And, and so I remember one day I, w- I got in the shower, I was ready for this like self-flagellation and then I, I'm like, okay, I'm ready. And then I kind of was like, come on, come on, like mean words. And I was like, why isn't it coming? And then I was like, like kind of trying to force it. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, wait, I think this is the practice working. Um, and it was so interesting to see it wasn't I'd like to say oh and it was a beautiful moment and from then on it changed no I was more like whoa okay but still not fully trusting it but then having seen that I wasn't looking for it but I was kind of like open to it I was like trying to play it cool with with how meta would come up in my life I was like yeah whatever and then it would show up and I was like whoa okay and then starting to see that more and more And I think what really helped me, and I didn't have the words to, to, for this until later, but I think it was knowing that there had to be more than just this ideal of we get to this place where we are loving and kind beings, and then we've arrived. That it's like, that is a recipe for suffering, basically, as I've learned. And so, as I kept, keep mentioning, the how is the key And I think sometimes we come to this practice, I certainly did. One of the reasons um, was to open my heart because I felt so tight and closed. And yet it's not only, and this is my uh, point of view, but it is not only about having a heart that is open 100% of the time. I think doing that or aiming to have that in in our practice could, could be something like, exhaling is so pleasant because I feel my body relax. I'm going to live only exhaling. It's like, no, it doesn't work like that. But there's ebbs and flows. There's birth and death, uh, gain and loss, open and closed, inhale, exhale, contraction, expansion. And I think this is, um, I, I'd like to, I feel like I heard Jack Cornfield say this on a retreat. Um, Buddhist teacher based in California, Jack Cornfield, um, And so I'm going to use my hand as a visual. I'll also describe it, but you might, if you're not looking at your uh, device, you might want to look at it. But Jack would hold his hand up, palm open, fingers open. And he, he asked us, is this a heart? And then he said, no. And then he closes his hands, hand into a fist and he said, is this a heart? And He also said, no. But instead, this is a heart. And then he would open and close his hand. So a heart is something that opens. And a heart is something that closes. And both are necessary. It opens perhaps for connection. Um, for resource. For for um, energy. Or when it's feeling energized. And it closes maybe for protection. For resourcing. And so... When I heard that, and then also my experience of just like the self-flagellation way that I was practicing, it really started getting me to to think about so many of these these teachings, in particular the the Viharas. And then I think around the same time, Larry Yang on another retreat I was on said, I love this. He, w- he was teaching his topic of his talk was the seven factors of awakening, but he started the talk with, I'm in a bad mood and I've been in a really bad mood for years or something like that. And I just found that so refreshing because I was like, yes, like realness or humanness. Cause, cause that is life, you know? And sometimes when when teachers share it's like wow they have it all together as i was saying or sometimes teachers would give examples of like oh yeah the last time i was not mindful was in 1974 i'm like what are you kidding me <laughs> you know and so and so when i heard larry say that i just found it so refreshing and then he would say you know i'm going to teach seven factors but there has to be more than this and in that teaching he placed every factor uh, on of the seven factors of awakening on a spectrum. And that was so eye-opening for me because I was like, hold on. If it's not just so clear cut and it's all a spectrum and actually this is where I, I find or I feel I live my life in between extremes. Then I started applying this idea of spectrum to so many of the things I've been learning in, in the Buddhist teachings. And so with metta, the um, far enemy or the opposite of metta on one extreme is hate. And then let's say, so again, I'm using my hands as a demo, but you don't have to look. Um, and on the other end is loving kindness. And, and yet, you know i don't always hang out in hate and and i don't always get to loving kindness and so it's like that doesn't mean i'm a bad yogi or i failed but it's like what is all of this in between and so i invite you to figure that out for yourself but for me it it appeared more like say so there was hate and then there was non-hate and then tolerance acceptance friendliness intimacy so like because because I was able to be so friendly, I wanted to spend more time with it, whether it's like my breath, my body, my, my relationship to myself, and then loving kindness. And so there was like all of this. And then I was like, ah, yes, this feels so much more alive for me and way more accessible. And then at some points, it's not like it's this linear path either. When, I'm, when I wake up first thing in the morning, maybe it's like tolerate, especially if I didn't sleep well, then after my coffee, it could be intimacy or loving kindness. And then when I'm really hungry, it might not be, you know, and so it changes throughout the day as conditions around us change, our um, capacity for loving kindness also changes, but it doesn't mean we're doing anything wrong. It's just the conditions. And if for so many years you have been or were stuck in hate or using hate and judgment as motivation like I did, it took me so long to get to this point where I can travel up and down the spectrum and have no problem with it. Um, But I realized that I wasn't doing until later um, validating the non-hate. So if hate is on one extreme, loving kindness on the other, non-hate is the first step in, I felt like if I was a millimeter in from hate in the, in the field of non-hate, I was moving in the right direction. And so to not underestimate that basically. So we'll, we'll practice in a few minutes. Last night, this morning, and in this practice um, before lunch, we will continue with loving kindness for ourselves. But it's really just setting the foundation. And it's partly because we come to practice because of our own suffering, whether it's stress, insomnia, just this um, challenge to navigate the world, the news, whatever it might be. And as of this afternoon, we will start touching into benefactor and neutral person. And tomorrow we'll do difficult person and um, all beings. But just to remind you that there's this journey we're on. And, and because I've seen this a lot, so I also teach mindfulness. And so um, when folks come to mindfulness because they're stressed or for their blood pressure or whatever, but then they stop there when their um, personal suffering is kind of like resolved or something like that. I feel like there's like this whole breadth and depth of teachings of wisdom and heart teachings in the Buddha Dharma that they're missing out on. And so I'm just so excited that you're here. Diving deeper, because it's when we touch into the beauty of the of the Buddha Dharma, then we start seeing the interconnection and the and our interbeing, and so we'll start seeing that this afternoon, basically. But it's like we're connecting to others, starting or fr- uh, via ourselves. We're like tuning into what Larry said. um it is through seeing the deep nature of our differences and how they are part of our lives that we can also see the deep similarities of our human experience and so that's what we're doing last night and this morning we're getting say really intimate with our own suffering our own capacity <clears throat> for our own suffering which then increases our compa- our capacity for others and it's often at least this was my experience when i felt like there was not that space for that capacity to hold others two things one it was i didn't yet trust the practice like that that it could indeed hold it all but it was also just what was happening was really hard. And so to slow it down, move at the speed of trust, basically. Maybe a, a shout out for mistakes. You know, like, just cause we learned this um, the spectrum or if it resonates with you, It doesn't mean that it is only pleasant. So uh, as that reminder, um, it'll hurt more, but it'll bother us less. So just letting you know that we will make mistakes. I continue to make mistakes, even though metta has been part of my practice for, has been a, a main part of my practice for about 10 years now. just trying to think yeah I mean just yesterday with my partner poor partner but um I don't know I just remember snapping at him and being like I'm always the house manager I want you to hold some of this too and that's not totally true it was before though but not anymore or much less so and um and my capacity to hold it all or or to make mistakes and to know that mistakes will happen allowed me to say, I think he replied with, well, that's not fair. And in the past, I would have been like, all right, game on. Yes, it is fair, you know, kind of thing. But then now it's, you're right, that wasn't fair. And so knowing I will make mistakes and that perfection is not the goal, but progress is, really allows me to show up Moment to moment, or at least many moments, short moments, many times. No, I'm not constantly mindful. Yet, when we're mindful, when we do make a mistake, we can. It increases our chances of learning from that mistake. And so that's par- perhaps part of the pain point with mindfulness. It's like, oh, I feel this more and. It also gives us an opportunity for learning. And so with that, we have this opportunity to increase our awareness, increase our learning, and feed, and then feed that back into what creates less suffering in the world now and in the future. Um, And just one more shout out for how, the howness of things. So back in the Buddha's time, Kusha grass was um, very common and, and it's a wild grass. I sometimes say that it was the first meditation cushion because um, the Buddha rolled up dried Kusha grass and then sat on that as, um, as he meditated during at least the the time when he obtained enlightenment. And um and yet, kusha grass. For those of you who are familiar with wild grass, um, it can be quite rough. And at that time, and even now, it can be used in rituals, et cetera. And so, I don't have paper, but a parking ticket I have. So, imagine this is kusha grass. And if we're holding on to it tightly, and then we um, we. We veer off from, from our intention to be loving and kind. So then, and so the intention for loving and kindness is this is the Kusha grass. So then we veer off, which is normal and natural. Then what happens is when we're holding tightly, um, we get caught, we get cut. And that that's what happened to me. I was, that's when the self-flagellation, I'm such a bad yogi, I'm not being loving and kind. This is all that I'm practicing, why not, etc. And yet when we're able to, to hold that intention for loving and loving kindness with, with care and reverence, but with this open hand. So when we do fall off the wagon, well then I can maybe dust myself off, maybe hand to heart, maybe more easily pick up or repick up my intention again. And so I'll end with this um, poem from Rupi Kaur, this really talented um, Indian Canadian poet. I woke up thinking the work is done. I would not have to practice today. How naive to think healing was that easy. When there is no end in point, no finish line to cross, healing is everyday work. And so let's um, practice together. And it will be 10 minutes, so shorter than what we have done so far together as a group. And so well, you might turn toward a window. So I have a window next to me, and you might just look out the window. It might be if you made tea Before the talk, you're holding the cup in your hands and eyes closed or turned down. Whatever you need, but again, that expression or extension of loving kindness you have or hope to have. And it'll be fairly unguided since it is a shorter amount of time and we all might be practicing differently, whether it's Sending metta to the version we see in the mirror, a younger version, imagining our ancestors and and teachers, our loved ones sending it to us, or using the image to spark that felt sense or feeling of metta.